Hey, welcome to the Tac Talks podcast. Tac Talks is a place where I sit down with some of the brightest and most influential people in the tech industry in the UK. We talk about their journey to where they are now, what they have going on behind the scenes, and we talk about some of the hot topics that I know people are going to want to know the answer to. When we started Tact, we were very passionate about giving people in the tech industry a voice, and with Tact Talks, we've done just that. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Tact Talks podcast. Today, I'm joined by Marlon Hope, head of products at Nessia. Hi, Marlon. Hi there. How are you? Good, good, good. Thank you for coming on, obviously. And again, an amazing day in Manchester, nice and sunny, thank God. Um, but yeah, look, for anyone who doesn't know who Marlon is, uh, who is Marlon Hope? Um, so I'm Marlon Hope. I'm uh, head of products at Nessia. Recently, how long have you been at Nessia now for? Uh, probably about March, I think. For real? And how's it going? Um, really, really well, actually. Um, one of the things that sort of drew me to the place is that there's some incredibly smart people there. Good. Um, so it's, it's one of the things you really got to be on your toes because like there's just so many bright sparks in, in all the different areas of the business. So it's quite exciting to be working with a really dynamic team. I think, yeah, obviously you're doing yourself this justice. You're pretty clever too, Marlon, you know. Um, but um, you've been, because uh, your career is quite very illustrious, if you may say so, because how, how, how did you get into your job? Because you didn't go the traditional route, did you, into, into product? No, I mean, to be honest, I haven't met too many people who have gone a direct route um, anywhere. So, you know, I've sort of taken in sales. I've taken in mortgage advice and financial advice, um, uh, project management and change management, um, sort of writing ISO processes, um, uh, doing change management, writing specs for systems. Um, I've worked in the NHS. Um, and I've done a whole range of roles within software development. So scrum masters, business analysts, service managers, product owners, all the way through. Incredible. Are you from Manchester originally? No. Where no. are you from? I'm from London. Oh, what? of course you are. Yeah, London accent. Um, <laughs> so you grew up in London. Whereabouts? Um, I grew up in the southeast. Um, so I main part of the time I spent there was in a place called Lewisham. Okay, nice. Um, what were we like as a kid? Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, what was I like as a kid? I suppose from probably different perspectives. So I think at school, um, I was a little bit rum. Um, I, was, I was probably the one that used to get in trouble, um, end up having to write letters of apologies to teachers. Um, and then from there, I used to establish quite good relationships with them. So I was kind of accepted as the little bit naughty, but kind of a nice guy. Nice. <laughs> She'd like one. to think. I'd like to think <laughs> they might have different stories for, for me now. But yeah, um, that's probably where I would pitch myself. Probably a little bit naughty. Probably gave my parents a little bit more grief than they would have wanted. Um, but yeah, um, generally tend to get on right with people. Amazing. What did your parents do? Um, so mom's a teacher. Uh, my dad's retired now, but uh, he was a mechanic and then sort of, um, sort of ran a franchise, a Rover franchise. So London, and then you said you were in sales originally. Yeah. Um, so um, I was at uni, mm -hmm. um, did a couple of years at uni, and then got a summer job doing sales in Bristol. So I was based out in Swindon at a place called the Royal Military College of Science mm -hmm. um, in a little village called Shrivenham between Swindon and Oxford. The summer of my second year, I um, answered an advert in the paper um, for... Um, sort of a graduate scheme sales program. Um, and it turned out to be a pyramid sk scheme selling gas and electric door to door. Classic. Classic. <laughs> I think everyone's been victim to that at some point. You show up for an interview and like, so what's the salary? Oh, no, no, there's no salary. It's cash, it's, it's cash uh, in hand. Uh, okay, wow, so you started in sales, yeah. which, do you see the benefit? I mean, did you get any good things from that? Um, yeah, I suppose, um, I suppose I did. I mean, you, you learn some resilience. Um, and I suppose there's some character traits that sort of came through then um, that have probably been consistent with me now. Um, so that was probably one of the first places that I realized that I don't really play by the rules. Um, so um, that sounds really ominous. <laughs> Um, but the, so the idea you sort of doing door to door and you're supposed to knock a hundred doors. And if you knock a hundred doors, then 
a certain number of people answer and you're not supposed to sort of um, wait around and try and sell to people. If you get through enough doors, you'll eventually make enough sales over the course of the, over the course of that period of time. I found that quite transient and it wasn't something that I kind of got on with. So I was the sort of person who'd knock 25 doors and make a sale and have a really good chat with people. Sometimes you didn't sell, sometimes you did sell. Met a load of really cool people on my, on my journey and made myself that way. And people used to sit there going, oh, mom, I'm doing another pride sale again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I kind of realized that this kind of big numbers, no relationship wasn't really me. So even though that was the formula, it wasn't one that kind of worked with me. So I had to kind of find my own way to operate within that framework. Love that. Okay. So that kind of leads us on to then, so sales and then mortgage advice, I think you said. No, there was a, there was a step before then. Oh, wow. So, okay. Um, I then moved to a company that used to, um, they used to install um, and maintain mobile phone masts on their sites. So it was um, uh, Centrica and um, the National Grid. Mm -hmm. So they've got sort of pylon sites and things like that. So mobile phone companies want to rent space on their towers so they can get great line of sight in terms of getting the mobile signal out there. Um, so the company basically used to sell space on their, on their towers. Um, and my job was to um, sort of manage the maintenance schedules. Um, so it was all around sort of coordination of when engineers could go up, switch out different towers that would affect those companies' signals so that they can do ma maintenance on those sites. Um, so yeah, that was that was that was my next job, um, and that's where I sort of got into quite a lot of um, process mapping, writing ISO standards to standardise things across the business because you had two businesses that were actually merging at the time. Um, so I did a lot of work around that, um, looking at sort of process optimization as part of process optimization. Um, you sort of map the process and then you sort of say, well, actually we can automate this. Um, so we can develop a system to automate that. So starting to write out a spec to be able to manage the automation of that. So um, yeah, that's that, that was the sort of next iteration um, that I worked on there. Um, then got made redundant. Um, and my mum was sick of me being around the house and, and not being particularly proactive about job hunting. Right. So she found me a job as a mortgage advisor. Right, fair play. Nice. Okay. Seems right. like your recruiter. <laughs> yeah, in a way. Yeah, okay. 100%. <laughs> cool. And then mortgage advice. How long did that like? Was it, was it a short stint or? Probably about four or five years. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, cool. A couple of years at Northern Rock, uh, probably about two or three years at HSBC. So how did you get into this field? Because this is so different maybe it's not I don't know but yeah well I suppose um, so when I came out of mortgages I went back into sort of project management and change management and again you're spending a lot of time sort of developing systems or developing specs for systems so I was the customer sort of feeding into engineering teams and then you start to spend more and more time with those engineering teams and it got to a point where I preferred it more on that side of the fence so I sort of flipped over. So at NICE, um, no, sorry, actually, before then, um, I was working for a procurement company um, and working with their IT teams um, and then moved across to NICE uh, and was working with them, so helping them set up some, um, some new programs there, but then also starting to manage different services for them. So I had about two or three services that I used to manage for NICE as a delivery manager, so sort of operating as a scrum master on a day-to-day, -day, um, sort of leading um, teams of people that are delivering change projects, so developing whole new systems or developing entirely new products, but then also maintaining the, um, the services that we provide to sort of customers and the NHS. And that was your first kind of insight into that full field? Full, full on that side of the fence, yeah. Wow. Was there a moment where you were like, this is okay, I like this sort of thing? Yeah, um, <laughs> it was quite interesting, actually. They were trying to build out um, a consultancy arm. Um, so um, one of the things that I did when I was at NICE is I helped them set up a medical technology advisory program. So the whole purpose of that was that um, there was a recognition that some of the most innovative um, technologies um, in healthcare weren't actually being adopted by the NHS. Mm -hmm. um, and 
these might be technologies that had higher efficacy or lower cost or lower cost um, of service. So you could use, um, instead of using a consultant, you know, you could use uh, a number of member of staff to actually carry out a procedure which sort of reduced the actual cost of service. Um, so NICE already had a program um, called the Technology Appraisals, and Technology Appraisals, ironically, it wasn't really looking at technologies, it was looking at drugs. Um, so you, the, the time you would have heard about that is sort of cancer drugs and things, so people being refused from having cancer drugs on the NHS. Yeah. NICE effectively had an evaluation program that would evaluate the efficacy of a drug uh, and the cost of it um, to determine whether or not it was cost-effective for the NHS to adopt. So they wanted to establish something similar for drugs, um, they wanted, uh, for, for medical technologies. Um, so they wanted that to be a lot faster, uh, a lot faster process, um, and adapted to be able to look at the merits of different medical technologies on different elements of the care pathway. Um, so, but they wanted to use this IP that they developed to understand how to evaluate these into be able to providing um, professional services to support developers of medical um, technologies. Mm -hmm. So understanding how they get their product to market, understanding how they evidence um, the efficacy of their products, um, doing research trials and otherwise, and they wanted to automate this. Um, and they were in a bit of a tight spot. They sort of launched this whole, whole event. They'd had different stakeholders involved and they had a drop dead date. Um, of when this, this product needed to be available for all the people, the stakeholders that had been involved to be able to see it. Um, now, I hadn't been involved in it, and we hadn't got very far very quickly. Uh, but fortunately, I'd been involved in the kind of setup of this program. So I spent the time working with stakeholders that didn't quite trust me when I first started. Um, effectively taking on a product owner's role because we had people that sort of go, right, I kind of want this, but I have no idea what the technology can do for me. So it'd be the equivalent of saying, right, this spreadsheet, can you just put this on, on the internet and can we use that? It's like, no, 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 no. There are different ways that you can use the technology to be able to get the impact that you're having or more impact, but with completely different mediums because you've got all these different tools that you can work with. Um, and we managed to knock that out in about eight weeks. Um, they'd been working on it for six months and didn't have a product. And in eight weeks, we managed to get a product out. Gee, that's incredible. So that, that, was that was really exciting. And even though it was quite stressful, it was a point where I knew this is my space. Mm. And what do you put that down to? What do you put that success down to? I had um, an amazing team, to be honest, um, because I, I must admit, whilst I understood the product space um, very well, the technical side was really challenging and quite new to me, all the development aspects of things. Um, and one thing that um, I, I do is I'm not afraid to ask stupid questions. Um, and my expectation is that if somebody really knows something, they can explain it to you like a four-year-old. Mm. Um, I generally tend to find if you can't do, then you, you haven't fully got your head around the problem. There's gaps in your knowledge, or maybe you think you've got the answer, and as you're explaining it, you go, oh, that was a mistake. Actually, this, this is where we are. Um, so an amazing um, uh, dev team lead um, who I'd sort of say, right, I want to be able to do this. How do we go about doing this? What are our barriers? And we'd sit there at the whiteboards, sort of scribbling things out. Um, and we'd map things out, and it's like, right, we're building that. Um, and we had a very, very lean team, um, a lot of extreme programming. So I'd just literally be sat on their shoulders going, right, we're adding this, we're adding that, we're changing that, bit of this out, um, sort of managing the relationship with the stakeholders and, and what have you. Um, so I think the success of it all was due to, fortunately, because we had a short timeline, it wasn't a time for a lot of research, but I, ha I had that knowledge and was able to be the conduit between the customer um, and the team, but I had an incredible team that sort of helped me on my way in terms of understanding the technical limitations of where we were going, and that was a really good foundation stone for me. Right, so right place, right time, right team, and it's just kind of set you off on the on the way to where you are now. I know you, uh, nice, and you went, I went to a company called Planix. Planix, that's right, yes, yes. So again, what, what happened there? What was your role there? So I went in as a scrum master for, for Planix. Um, really great place. And I wanted to go there because 
um, I felt that it was a time where I could do with a little bit more polish and finesse to me. Um, I got to the point where I'd become quite effective at sort of running delivery teams. I'd started to understand um, the nature of, of, of software, um, sort of all the, a lot of the challenges. You know, at NICE, I'd, I was quite fortunate. The sort of growth period was massive because I wasn't just running one pro uh, project. I was probably running five squads at a time, um, delivering projects that would be anywhere between three and nine months in terms of delivery scales, but um, working in a completely agile way. Um, did a lot of work with um, with sort of gov.uk, did a lot of their sort of gov.uk assessments. So really got a, a, a quite rounded appreciation for how to deliver software projects sort of in best practice, um, where to cut corners, um, because these things are a, a toolbox um, rather than sort of a fait accompli of how you go about doing things. Started to develop that instinct of where to adapt in different situations, but then also getting a real appreciation of how systems hang together. Um, so that was that was quite quite a big one for me, and as well as deliver, uh, and maintaining ongoing services as well, sunsetting systems and that sort of thing. Um, so I'd probably say that in the time that I was there, I probably, I would say I probably did three times the sort of learning experience that you would do in a, in a typical role. Um, so that was, that was a really important step. Um, at Planix, slightly different pro problem. Um, I initially went in, was sort of running one team, um, and we, the product that Planix produces a liquidity, some liquidity software. And what that's used to do is help banks visualize where their funds are. So if you go to the cash machine and you know you've got 100 pounds in your bank account, but you put your card in the machine and that, and that, that card machine says um, there, there's no cash in this cash machine, you've got a liquidity problem. You do have money, but you're not liquid at that moment in time. Exactly the same prospect for banks. So banks will have money swashed around, they'll have thousands of accounts in different areas um, across different legal entities and in different currencies. Now, if they've got all their money in dollar, but they need to trade in, in sterling and there isn't any funds in the account, they've got a liquidity shortfall. Um, so the idea of the, the system was to aggregate all of their funds so that they could actually see where their funds were um, and be able to make sure that they could sweep funds from one account to another so that they can manage their, their intraday obligations. Wow, okay. So I was working with them and they wanted to build a sort of a, a real-time matching system. So if you think every sort of trade that happens, there needs to be a, a booking to say, right, we're going to buy X amount of million pounds of dollars, or oh, we're going to buy X amount of sterling. There's a ledger um, that's entered onto their books and records to say, right, this amount of money is going to move at some point in the day, but they don't know when it's going to. So in order to be able to reconcile, have I been paid for that as that transaction happened, they have to match the real-time transaction against the ledgers in there. Um, but there's not an awful lot of information on the real-times other than the amount in some cases and the account number. Um, and there might be several transactions of the same size, but for different things. Um, so we built um, a matching engine that sort of enabled people to sort of uh, codify the rules that they wanted to match on in the front end um, and enabled in real time as these transactions were going to be able to pair off um, these, these trades so that people could see in real time how well they were meeting their obligations and potentially if they were going to have a shortfall at the end of the day and where they might need to move funds from one account to another. Um, so that, that was, that was a, an amazing project. Again, really short time frames. Um, it was really, really cut and dry, but it was an absolutely amazing effort by the team that I was working with there. And off the back of that, I ended up being uh, promoted to um, sort of product manager for, for the entire product. And um, sort of, yeah, that, that was sort of me sort of firmly on the, the product route. Amazing. Okay. And then fast forward to now, you are now head of product at Netasphere. So for people who don't know, I guess, who Netasphere is, I don't know who wouldn't, um, 
what did Netsia do? What's their what's their their business? So what AP uh, what Netsia do is they um, protect sort of websites and web APIs um, from um, the threat of malicious actors. Um, so malicious actors are effectively people that will codify bots to be able to carry out transactions uh, on a site that, that organizations aren't, don't want to do. So for instance, if Nike released the latest uh, release of trainers um, and they've got special edition out, um, someone can actually um, send a bot to be able to sort of scalp those trainers, so buy them off the site and then resell them on somewhere else for a higher price. So we're kind of safeguarding against sort of actions of that nature. Incredible. Okay, great. Because it's, it's like security and cybersecurity, the minute is, is the, the demand for it is incredible, right? It, 100%. Everyone's putting such a big focus on it. And you as head of product, I guess, what is your remit? What, what's your job? So in terms of my role, um, we've kind of got we've kind of got a range of people that sort of that sort of feed into what we do. I, I kind of look at product as um, a little place in the middle that's trying to join all the dots of all the things that are going on. Um, so in different roles, um, it's been sort of doing sort of horizon scanning, uh, working directly with 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 our customers, engaging in user research to understand where we're sort of going and how we're growing. Um, and then also working with the delivery teams um, in terms of being able to take all of those external inputs and be able to shape them into um, the range of sort of features that will sort of serve our customers. So taking a lot of metrics um, and trying to understand a lot about how people use the system and where there are opportunities to grow and then being able to sort of lead teams that are actually able to work with our delivery teams to sort of visualize that um, and actually bring it to fruition. Um, so that's that's kind of sort of generally what I've been doing. But sort of within um, Netsia, like I said, they've got some really incredible people. So um, we've got um, people that operate in th threat research that have sort of established um, the sort of de facto sort of Bible on how you detect malicious bots um, and the stages that these malicious actors will go through to acquire um, your information and how they'll use that information in different stages to be able to sort of penetrate your, uh, your system um, and be able to carry out the actions that you want to complete. Um, so uh, we've got a great team that's sort of established this framework. They spend a lot of time trying to understand um, how um, some of these um, some of these actors are going about carrying out their activities. Um, so we've got a great team that sort of work in that space and they sort of feed into the process so that we sort of understand a little bit more about what's happening in that space. Um, we have um, an incredible uh, data analysis and data science teams. Um, they develop all the kind of learning algorithms because um, a lot of how it works is behavioral analytics. Um, so we're effectively looking at every interaction that hits the the, um, the API, the, the, the sort of customer API, um, um, and trying to analyze whether or not that behavior is likely to be the action of a genuine user or a malicious bot. So the data science teams are constantly developing new methods um, and new learning systems to be able to identify the behaviors of these to, to be able to see whether or not that's an action that we want to block or, or we want to carry uh, allow to carry out the action that they're doing. Is there any big telltale signs to see if someone is a malicious actor or a, a sorry a bot or a human? There are sort of tells. So, in terms of sort of understanding the way that people sort of operate and move around on the internet, um, the, the, this, this, the, the the learning algorithms are able to pick up those signals um, and be able to identify. Yeah, because the only insight I have into that is, is when you're trying to sign into your Instagram and they give you a matrix of pick, pick all the traffic lights. Capture, and you're like, yeah. oh, is, that, is that a traffic light? Is that not a traffic light? And you sweat and you think, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not a robot, I'm not a robot. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure it's a lot more advanced than that. Yeah, 100%. That, that's, 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 one of, that's one of the tools that's, that's in, the, in the arsenal. Um, but yes, um, the, the, the captures uh, screens are 100% one, one of the elements that, that there might be a query as to whether or not you're a genuine user or a, or a bot. Fair play. I might, I might fail. I might think I'm a bot. Um, okay, amazing. Because one of the things you're super passionate about is change management, right? Two things. Does your role now involve a lot of change management? And how would you describe your approach to change management? 
so one of the things when you know I was talking um, to the guys in SA about coming on board was that they wanted to evolve their practice. So like I said, there's some incredibly smart people that work incredibly hard and have developed um, an absolute leading uh, product in this space. Um, but one thing I liked about them was that they're not an organization that want to stand still. Um, they're not happy um, doing what they've always done and getting the outcomes. They're, they're incredibly ambitious and they want to grow. And uh, knowing that they want to grow, they know they want to bring more people, but they also want to be as efficient and effective as they can be. Um, so there's um, a number of aspects um, in terms of change is, is about sort of helping to develop the, the culture of our engineering teams, um, sort of moving more and more to best practice, a lot more automation, um, working in more um, well-defined sort of product and feature-based squads, um, so there's some of the kind of sort of delivery aspects um, that I've been involved with. Um, other than that, um, a lot of the other aspects is more about sort of bringing all the different parts of the business together and sort of making sure that we've got a more um, communicative way of being able to talk about what we're going to, what we're building, and how we're servicing our customers going forwards. So just bringing all of those departments together and, and sort of giving them a kind of unified view of uh, where we're going based on the kind of objectives that the organization have and the goals that we have for the product and our customers. I'm the kind of guy, when you're given a mammoth task, like a big whale of a task, what, half of the issue is where, you know, where do you start and how, and how do you attack it? I'm sure in your career, and I think you've touched on a few now, when you're given a mammoth, mammoth like, Marlon, can you please sort this out? What's the first thing you do? Do you know what? I, I, I smile because whenever anyone mentions this, um, it takes me back to sort of GCSEs, um, okay. having to write essays and, and sitting there having tantrums about, God, how the hell am I going to write 2,000 words on this? And my mum used to really irritate the life out of me because she used to say, Marlon, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, and 100%, you know, it, it was true then and it's true today. Um, the biggest thing is starting. Um, throw out some assumptions. I think one of, one, one of the things that I learned um, sort of working in this space, and I, I've been quite fortunate to be someone who's done a lot of greenfield um, projects. Um, and you, know, you notice people that have done a lot of greenfield projects because there is a different way of operating to working with something that's existing. Um, and the first thing is that, you know, if you're straight line to A from, from A to B, there's always lots of gaps in what you know from where you are to where you're going. And that can be quite scary because you approach the problem and you say, right, well, there's so many things that I don't know. Where do I start? Um, for me, what I like to do is I like to draw, draw a straight line from where we are to where we're going. And then I like to think about all the things that I know that are absolute. So it might be time, it might be technology choice, um, it might be the customer base or others, and I sort of dot those along the path. Um, so all of a sudden, rather than um, having a massive canyon, you know, like um, in... Um, in like a, a, a stereotypical... Oh, like the Temple of Doom or some, somewhere like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones. So Indiana Jones, you, you know, I, I liken these things to sort of Harrison Ford running away from somebody and doing that handbrake sort of stop as the dust sort of falls down on this massive ravine um, and he's just about to fall over. And then all of a sudden he sort of uh, pulls some booby traps and all of a sudden a couple of stones drop into place. And as you start to step forward on the things that you've got sure footing on, you then say, okay, well, there were 10 points on this journey. I started off at one and there was 10, but actually I was able to drop four in, I was able to drop five in. So actually, if I don't look to get to 10 and I look between one and four, what steps would get me to one and four? And you build those in. And then I get to step four and I say, okay, well, what's going to take me from four to six? I've just got a little gap there. And then we'll test, we'll experiment, and then we'll get there, and so on and so forth. So, um, like I said, I like to I like to sort of create that that longer term. I like to take the absolute, and I also um, tend to make a lot of assumptions. Uh, I'm quite comfortable making assumptions because, in the absence of of any evidence, 
you can't be proven as being wrong at that point. So you make some assumptions based on the direction of travel, and you're saying, I think if we're going there, these are the assumptions that will get us there, and you prove and disprove. You test and you prove and disprove. Some are proven right, some are proven wrong. Proving it wrong, not so big a deal, because actually you're moving closer to the answer. So that's kind of how I go about that in a very wordy, long-winded way. No, that's perfect, and I love the analogy of uh, Indiana Jones amazing amazing and I, i've got this image of uh of oh, what was the last i'm not going to get into this but it was the last one anyway but i'll talk about crystal it. skull it was when they had the uh the, the holy grail and oh, he yeah. was and he yeah. was walking across the yes yeah that's what i had in that's mind that's what i was thinking when he sort of scatters the dust so he can actually see his path back yeah yes yes yeah. i'm glad on the same page yeah um no that, no that's amazing and i think it was, how, how did you come to those conclusions was it just a was it just trial and error because from from working at um, nice to to now how did you come up with that me uh, method i like new things um i became quite accepting that i would never know all the answers mm. um and some you know you know some of it you know you look at sort of agile Man manifesto you know you're talking about sort of doing lots of experiments um and spikes and discovery to try and understand what you, what you need to go and where you need, where you need to get to um, so all of those things are a part of agile ways of working anyway um, but for me i sort of embody all of that so all, all of these processes philosophies i don't sort of get myself wedded to them i try and take the things that make sense and are repeatable and i make them a part of me in the way that i operate so every time I hear another way of working, I don't look at it in isolation. I say, okay, based on the way that I've developed myself to think and work, what aspects of those will enhance the way that I work? And I'm constantly looking to sort of build on or chip away or evolve the way that I'm working so that we can be more effective in more and more different situations. I bet you've got to be so unmarried to a particular uh, opinion or idea, right? Like you're talking about there, Going, going out there with assumptions, um, you've got to be really um, dismissive of those assumptions, I guess, as soon as they're proven wrong. You can't be, yeah. That. The thing I tend to hang on to is the end goal. Mm, okay. So we, we have to end up there. Mm. Um, but how we get there isn't quite so important. Mm. So these things tend to be a little meander. Um, you go a little bit left and then you shift a little bit right and then you go right again and then you do a big go left again. Um, it is a bit of a meander and I think, you know, I've, I've spoken to a few people about this sort of in, in sort of mentoring and otherwise. Um, I try and hang on to things with a loose grip. Um, you know, you, you, you've got a steering wheel, you're sort of, you know, you're moving that steering wheel but have a loose grip because actually if something changes in the road, you can adjust whereas if you sort of, hold on tight like this you're just going to go straight and it's really difficult to change direction um so yeah i think that's that's something that that i try and stick to is having a loose grip knowing where you're going but not being fr frightened to deviate yes yeah that's a really good way of putting it with the tiger from the steering wheel because I, I always say when people ask um for our own business when they're saying you know where, where do you expect to be in 12 18 months whatever it, whatever it could be I, I always try to say oh, I, I don't we don't really like to think that far ahead because i think if you do and you're, you miss what's in the periphery, and you, and you can, and like I said, change this, change direction if needed. Um, that's yeah, that's, that's a brilliant analogy. So, obviously, trial and error a lot of a lot of your career is it seems it seems like you just try different things out and and see and to see what's wor what's what worked. Um, it sounds like a lot of your career it was down to a lot of people giving you the opportunity to to learn and um, and in an indirect way men mentored you. Uh, that's something you're quite again similar to change management very passionate about is mentoring isn't it and developing people why actually it's the opposite of what you said so uh, so i had this notion um that when you entered the world of work mm. and you worked hard that people would say oh there's a there's a rough diamond there let's let's take them under our wing and polish them up and sort of bring them on their way um, and you tend to find that people are just really busy with what they're doing. So actually, for people who've had those those people in their life, they're fortunate and they're they're fewer and further between. Um, 
I, you know, I found that they're not that anyone didn't have the desire to, but maybe didn't have the capacity or weren't able to look at an individual as a unique individual and sort of be able to see what they had or what was missing and be able to see their potential in the same way. Um, so, you know, I spent a lot of time sort of looking around, sort of thinking, right, where is this person who's just going to come and pluck me out and sort of shape and mold me sort of thing? And it didn't happen. So I had to start to fill my own gaps. Um, so I became more and more inquisitive. Um, I tried to learn more. Um, and over time, you, you, I started to develop my own way of thinking about um, how to be effective in work. Um, you go through periods where you sort of develop yourself and you go, right, I'm really good at this now and I can do this really well. But then what's being asked of you gets bigger. So you can't do it on your own. So you've now got to have um, several people that can do what you do. So all of a sudden you go from a position where you're going, right, I've worked out how I can do this. And sometimes I don't even know how I can do this to a point, actually, I've got two or three other people that I've got to be able to do this. So I now have to think about what is my thought process? How do I get to the point where I'm able to make the decisions that I'm making? Um, and is it, ah, I'm seeing some data and actually when this needle moves, it tells me something. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that's driving those decisions. So how do I incorporate that into a way of operating that other people can use those indicators to make similar decisions? Um, and I suppose that's kind of where it's grown, uh, grown from. So that kind of gap that I had, I think, in my career to trying to be more effective and realizing that I couldn't do things on my own to then starting to develop other people um, so that they could become more effective and effectively trying to make yourself redundant. You know, if there's, if I do this, and that was my job, and I bring someone else in to help, I'd like to get to a point where that person can come in and do that, and actually I'm not needed to do this, so therefore I can focus somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I can take on a new problem. Um, and, and then you keep going like that, and, you, you, and then you slowly start to take on more and more things. Um, and it, you know, it, it, it's something I enjoy. Um, in terms of recruiting, I work with recruiters, um, they always say something, Marlon, what you're looking for? So, you know, what what do they need on their CV and what do they need on this? I said, look, you guys understand the industry, so there, there are key points that, that people need to hit. But ultimately, give me a thinker. Give me someone who's bright, who wants to solve problems, who's excited, um, and I can work with anybody like that. Because one thing that I've found, it doesn't matter how experienced you are how many times you've been through things you always see something new you always come across a problem that you haven't quite come across in the guise that it has um, so for me somebody who is a thinker has the attributes to come across a problem come across that ravine and instead of running screaming will sit there and go well how how do I go about that they'll start asking questions they'll challenge other people um, they will make assumptions. Um, and somebody who comes to that ravine and says, Marlon, could we do it like this? For me, is a far more exciting prospect to work alongside than somebody going, what do we do? I prefer to have a series of wrong answers, but somebody who's learning and evolving than, than there being no answers or no suggestions. So um, that's, that's something that's sort of quite important to me in terms of the way I work, the, try and, the teams that I try and build. Um, and it also fosters collaboration. So when a question comes up, instead of struggling on your own, you look up and you say, well, who can help me? We collaborate. Um, and that, that's the, they're the kind of teams that I'm really proud to be a part of. Is there ever a, a time where you've mentored somebody who... I don't want to say unmentorable because that's, that's, that's a rough way to put it, but someone who's just not helping themselves and getting their own way. Yes. The reason I said that is because I've spoken to a, a couple of people who, similar, like, similar to you, are very passionate about mentoring. I think it's such an important thing uh, to be passionate about. But the difficult question that nobody ever talks about is, you know, you need to abandon those who abandon themselves and, um, and sometimes realize where you've quickly lost and realize I'm, this, my time is wasted mentoring this person because they're just not that interested. 
the way that I've approached this and in the situations where I have supported other people, one of the things that I talk about is, look, this this isn't um, something that either of us has to do. Um, it's an opportunity for you to be able to explore yourself, ask questions about yourself. Um, and the relationship that I have is not one where you're sort of giving all the answers, but you're making suggestions. Um, you're asking questions about that individual um, and getting them to look at themselves. But what I would generally tend to do is there will normally be an opportunity for learning, a learning point. Um, and that's their opportunity to go away and think about that. Um, and I don't re-engage unless that person has been through that experience. And at that point, that person's been through that experience. They've, they've thought about it. They've asked questions and they can come back and we can start to talk about that. We don't progress. And that's one way that I try and protect my own time. But also, um, it's, it's an opportunity for that individual to try and understand what they want out of that relationship. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of what you're saying, you know, having people that are unmentorable, maybe the, the, the answer isn't that they're not mentorable, but at that point in time, they're not looking for, um, for what they're going to get out of it. You know, they've engaged in, in a relationship and they haven't really understand what the benefit is to them. I think anybody who understands what the benefit to them is prepared to explore, is prepared to think about, is, is like when you've seen a really good film and it's got like a weird in, ending and you try and theorize, so what did the writer mean? You know, or you read a bit of poetry and you sort of say, what did the writer mean? If you're excited about it, you then start to ask those questions. Why was it like that? Did it mean this? You know, is there a hidden meaning? If you're not excited, you just watch the film and it ends and you never talk about it to anybody else. Yeah. And I, and I see it in the same light, um, you know, when, when you're mentoring, you know, if somebody comes away from an exchange and their mind opens up to different possibilities and they're excited to explore themselves a little bit more, they will just do it. But if they're not at that point in their lives, um, then it's not that important to them. And, and at that point, it's difficult to progress um, that relationship until, until that person comes to that point in their lives. So look, really good point on um, their own mentorship. I, I think another thing that I wanted to ask is around, because again, you're from the Southeast, you've chosen Manchester as your home. Yeah. Why? There is a longer version <laughs> that is probably best served for a pub conversation. Cool, okay. <laughs> but the, the short story is that... Um, I, when I was at uni, I used to play uh, um, a football tour to the Isle of Man, met a load of people from Man Met Hockey, um, ended up going on more hockey sports tours than pretty much anyone from Man Met. Um, so was was coming back and forth quite regularly. Um, and then there was a point where I was looking for a new job. Um, I was looking in London and I thought, well, I'm up there all the time. Should I apply up there as well? And ended up getting a job in Manchester. Um, so that was kind of the start and the plan was probably come here for a few years and then move back down to London um, and, and never left. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And what about the tech community in Manchester? Because you're quite pretty heavily ingrained into the tech community, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, it's incredible. Um, sort of the amount of people that sort of give up their time to um, come alongside each other, share knowledge, um, support one another is just incredible um, and you know I can't really speak to sort of how these tech communities work in other cities but one thing that I find is that I speak to a lot of people that sort of come from different parts of the countries and otherwise and they're always blown away by what we have here in Manchester mm -hmm. um, it's an incredible ecosystem of collaboration um, and you can see that at grassroots, sort of in a kind of meetup spaces. Um, you can also see that sort of in a in an organisation and institutional level as well, um, with sort of partnerships with universities and industry and um, uh, sort of organisations like your Bruntwoods and otherwise. There's there's lots of collaboration and partnership that, that happens in the city. And I think it's something that Manchester's really good at. Um, you know, the, the, the partnerships across healthcare um, were really leading 
um, in Manchester ahead of sort of anywhere else in the country in terms of how they they network up and utilize resources um, across the city. Um, so I think that spirit of collaboration is 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 innate within Manchester, and we're just experiencing it in in this tech space. And, and, and it's got to be the reason why we're growing so rapidly up here in terms of the number of larger organizations that want to be here um, because they recognize there's a thriving talent pool. Um, but also, I think, like anything, there's always going to be gaps. But you've got lots of people that are putting their hand up saying, I'm prepared to be a person that's going to help fill this gap. I'm going to try and find a way to fill this gap. So, you know, you've got skills, skill shortage gaps and you've got a range of different um, organizations that are providing boot camps and activities to bring tech returners into it or develop young people and bring them into the space. Um, so for me, that's the thing that I find really incredible um, is, 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 is that willingness for people to fill gaps that aren't their own to fill, um, but just to support the ecosystem. And you must feel it now working in town, obviously, Metatia, walking through after work, and especially when it's a gorgeous day, how buzzing it is all the time. You have like loads of young people out there having an amazing, amazing time. Young professionals just, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And you can even look at the skyline in Manchester. The, the amount of cranes that are up, the amount of buildings that are going up, it's insane. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I, I think I first came to Manchester probably about 2001, and the city is just unrecognizable. So I think like one of my first visits up here was about 2001. I moved in 2005. The city is just unrecognizable mm -hmm. from what it was. I mean, Piccadilly was derelict it was a building site um and you know it's massive thriving and all that sprawled out you know the northern quarter was like a strip yeah. um i remember um looking to buy a flat in ancoats when i first sort of moved up here and sort of being put off by the fact that oh yeah well this building's really cool but there's cranes all around it and there's still cranes but they're just further out now mm -hmm. and actually the places that i was looking at the time were like some of the most buzzling um, sort of bustling places that you go, amazing restaurants and bars and just all sorts of entertainment. You know, it really is um, a truly European city. Yeah. God knows what it's going to be like in five, ten years' time. It's going to be ridiculous. But, um, but no, amazing. And again, on Netsia, I mean, amazing business, obviously. What's, what are the plans? Is there anything we need to keep an eye out for with Netsia? We're just looking to grow. I think, um, you know, one of the biggest um, areas for us as a business was um, growing into the US market. Um, and, and, and that's been a massive thing for us. So we've got a really good and stable base in the UK, sort of working with a lot of incredible brands. Um, and it's, it's actually, we feel quite proud to be representing an organization that is able to provide a service to, you know, some of the most amazing brands. Um, but the expansion into the US has been a massive one. Um, you know, in terms of building a capability out there as well, sales capability, pre-sales capability, um, operational people to sort of work with with our, our partners and clients um, stateside. Um, and it's just a really growth area. I think a lot of the people that we've come across in the States are really clued up about this sort of um, problem of sort of malicious activities and malicious intent um, on um, sort of web and APIs. So, you know, for us, you know, that is um, a sort of a huge sort of growth area for us. Um, and as a business, we're just sort of doing everything we can to sort of scale to continue to meet meet the needs and the demands of our customers. Well, obviously I'm conscious of time, so I, I won't go into that right now, but maybe that's for podcast number two with Marlon about how you've, uh, how you've got into the US and how, what journey that's been, because I'm sure that's his own story unto itself. Look, I mean, obviously you're a Netsia now. If you had, you were a Netsia, you had a million quid, and someone said, sell the business, Marlon, what would it be? What, what would you go with? Ah, uh, it's a really interesting one. Something that's really interested me, and it's it's been a continuous theme. So, you know, I've sort of worked with sort of charities and sort of mentoring and sort of youth working and otherwise. So, like, I think you can sort of see that the sort of thread in some of the areas of interest. But one of the things that's always been quite curious to me is that you've got loads of sort of fantastic voluntary organizations that are doing loads of good stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but you can quite often have a team that sort of 
providing this service. And then another team over here that's kind of providing this service. And they don't know about each other, they don't talk to each other. And actually, the benefit or the opportunity for change um, would come from actually utilizing the sort of combined resources of these because actually they can offer a, a broader service offering. So something I've, I've, I've always been interested in um, was one, um, a sort of a, a, a directory, a way of being able to visualize these organizations and for people to be able to see um, the different types of organizations that op operate in those spaces, to be able to see the overlaps between them so that you can actually sort of great, great, great synergies there. Also for the potential for funding these organizations as well. So if you are a funder, um, actually somebody who's applying for grant funding and their bid doesn't look strong rather than being able to reject their bid, being able to say, actually, if you were to bring these businesses together, your offering would be a, a lot stronger. So for me, sort of operating in a, in a space where you can sort of help make the organizations that are doing great work more dynamic by being able to create those visible links and partnership links. Um, that would be something that's quite exciting, sort of um, kind of an incubator hub in some respects. So, you know, providing them with services to, um, you know, build a sort of a, a digital um, proposition, sort of PR, that sort of thing, but also connecting them to sort of funding and otherwise. I think, you know, it's slightly altruistic, but, you know, that that's a space that's been intriguing to me for quite a while. Uh, and I'm still turning over in terms of what's the best way to be able to to be able to fulfill that. Well, here's a check, but and I'm joking the entire <laughs> frame, wait for you. Um, incredible, great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, M amazing. And look, last question, and I'll I'll let you go. Um, last day on earth, it isn't, but imagine it was. Uh, <laughs> last day on earth, uh, apart from of course being on this podcast because it's amazing. Uh, or spending time with family, what would you be doing? What, what fulfills you? What lights you up? What would you be doing your last day on Earth? Do you know what? I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing absolutely glorious sunny weather and I'm thinking, yeah, great festival, good music, nice. with friends, mm. sun is shining, no worries. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Any kind of music? Um... Depends on your mood. It depends on the time of day. You know, I can sort of sit, I can see during the day sort of some sort of uh, sort of chilled, funky house kind of beats. Nice. Um, I could probably see. Um, I, I I love sort of soca music. Uh, so from the Caribbean, so so a lot 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 of dancing and and otherwise. And then probably finish off with a cheeky bit of drum and bass at the end of the night. Oh, nice. And a few beers, I assume. Naturally. <laughs> cool. Other well, drinks are available. Yes. Um, well, look, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an amazing talk. I know we've overrun a bit, but I think um, we're going to have to get you back on at some point to finish off the conversation. Excited to see what happens with Netsy in the next 12, 18 months. And um, yeah, great speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you.